Um, but today is, is going to be an awesome text. We're really going to come to uh, really a monumental shift in our story in Luke. And before we start, if you're new to Safe Haven, um, just so you kind of have an idea of how we approach this time, how we approach the text, typically we take books of the Bible and we start and we journey through from beginning to end, verse by verse, line by line. And that's where we are uh, now we're studying through the book of Luke. Specifically, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, and we're going to start with verse 15. But before we do, before we jump in, I want to look back to where we left off last week, because I think it's important to kind of make sense, right? Where we are in the text right now, we're in the middle of John the Baptist's ministry, right? And he's really gathered quite a following, uh, a good bit of popularity, People are hearing his message, which is crazy that he's popular because if you remember last week, he started off by calling people a brood of vipers. Um, I don't remember people getting mad and leaving. In fact, they responded and said, what should we do? So oddly enough, they're taking heed. And his message is really two parts, right? One is repent, turn from sin. But the other is get ready because the Lord is coming. And I think the second part of that message is really what the people are hanging on to. This is what's stirring people's hearts. It's creating excitement and anticipation. And we're almost to a boiling point in this part of the story, okay? So that's where we are. It's where the people's minds are. So let's pick up at verse 15 in chapter 3. All right. And as the people were in expectation, and listen to this, All were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Okay, let's let's stop there for just a second. Okay? So everybody's excited. We've built this anticipation. They're hearing what John's saying. Get ready, prepare, because the Lord's coming. And they're not just taking that and saying, okay, maybe the time is now. Now now they're starting to think, it's got to be John, right? And in this moment, I think we have this picture of not only this excitement and this anticipation, but what they're really longing for is for their hero to come on the scene. We have this picture that they're kind of on the edge of their seats. It actually reminded me of kind of how I was as a, as a kid, enjoying one of my favorite things. I will let you know, I loved wrestling as a kid, all right? Now, some of you, you're nodding your heads, and you're like, we just became best friends, right? And some of you are like, yeah, you're kind of a loser, all right? But I loved wrestling, and I have a little brother who's four years younger than me, so he had to love wrestling too. I had to have somebody to practice my moves on. I was pretty good, right? I loved it. But my favorite event was the Royal Rumble, okay? Just the name alone is good, the Royal Rumble. And if you're not familiar with it, this is, it's basically a battle to see... Who's going to be the last man standing? Okay, you start with one wrestler in the ring, then another one comes out, and the only way to stay is to knock somebody over the top rope. But here's the catch. There's a timer. There's this giant clock, and it counts down every two or three minutes. And when it hits zero, the curtains open, the intro music plays, and another wrestler comes out. Okay? So if nobody's eliminated, clock counts down, somebody comes out, somebody comes out. It's crazy, but the reason I loved it as a kid, because all I wanted, I would watch the clock. I'm watching the wrestling, but I'm really watching the clock. I'm watching it count down, three, two, one, and every time, all I want is to see those curtains rip open and the red and yellow to come out. I want to see the Hulkster, right? I wanted my hero to come out, and this this is what the people are feeling in this moment. 
there's this anticipation building, this excitement. Just like me waiting for the clock. Three, two, one. I know it's coming. They're hearing John's message. It's here. It's now. They want this hero. So much so that they're now saying, John, it's got to be you. Okay? This is where their hearts are. But John's about to give them a message. He's going to give them an answer. That's not really what they were looking for. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. So John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, okay. (laughs) Imagine how the people felt, right? They're so excited. They're ready in this moment. And really, this is kind of like the mountaintop peak moment for John's ministry. It doesn't, he's, he's most popular at this point. He's the focal point. And with this message, he clearly says, hey, I'm not who you're looking for. And really, it's the end of his story. But I think what he's telling the people here when he kind of lets all the air out of the balloon, I think he's laying out three really distinct ways in which he and the Lord to come, he and the Messiah are different. All right. The first thing I think he points out for the people is that his position is different. Right? And I think what he's getting at with this is when he's telling the people, hey, he's coming as mighty, he's different than me, and not just that, but his value and his worth, I'm not on that level. Okay? What he's telling the people is, I'm really just like you. Like you're expecting for something greater, you're longing for something greater, but the one who's coming is so much better than me. I can't fulfill that. Right? I'm just a man. You don't owe me anything. In fact, I think, I think John had a pretty healthy view of his position or his place. Right? We can see this in his encounter. I can't remember. We may have talked about this last week. Um, but in the book of John, when, when John's given his account of the baptism, before that, we see that scribes and Levites were sent from Jerusalem to talk to John, and they were on a mission. Right? And they say, John... We have to know who you are. And he says, okay, well, I am not the Christ. And he said, all right, well, are you Elijah? He says, nope. Are you the prophet? He says, no. And then they say, okay, well, we were sent from Jerusalem. We've got to know who you are. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And he quotes from Isaiah and he says, I am the messenger in the wilderness declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. And I think right what, he, what he's saying here is a picture of that as well. The one who's coming, he's mightier. He's more worthy than me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a man. I can't fulfill you in this way. I can't meet these expectations for you. But not only is his position different from the Lord to come, I think he's telling us his power is different. I think he gets at this when he compares the two baptisms, right? Because he starts by saying, I'm going to baptize you with water, but the one who's coming, he's coming both with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And I think the picture John is giving us here with this comparison is that what I'm giving you is just external. It's just an outward cleansing that hopefully is a picture of the inward cleansing that you need. But the one who's coming, he's coming with the Holy Spirit. And he will have that power. He will have that authority to cleanse you from within like I never could. I never could. And what's interesting when he talks about the Holy Spirit here, keep in mind, John knows the Holy Spirit. John's experienced the Holy Spirit. In fact, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about John and his mother's womb, you remember what it said? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. But even in this moment, he's telling the people, I am not one with the Holy Spirit. I cannot give you this, and I can't cleanse you from within. I think this cleansing from within, giving the Holy Spirit, I think what we're really talking about is forgiving sin, right? And it's interesting because in a couple of weeks, we're going to see this issue with Jesus once we get to Jesus' ministry. And I don't want to give too much away because we'll get there eventually. But in the parable or the, the story, excuse me, of Jesus healing the paralytic, the friends lower him down through the roof. Jesus notices his faith. And what's the first thing he says to him? said, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees hate this. In fact, they call him a blasphemer. Now, why would they do that? It's because they know without a shadow of a doubt, only God has the authority to forgive sin, right? That only God has that power. And then, of course, Jesus says, just so you know, you don't question my power and my authority, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk. He tells them, get up and walk, right? And John's giving us this picture. Jesus is coming. The one is coming who will have not just a better position than me, but more power than me. He's going to be able to cleanse you from within. He's going to be able to forgive sin. But the flip side of that coin is there's also judgment from sin. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about both. And I think it leads into also how John's telling us his purpose is different, right? That he's telling the people, not only can I not cleanse you, forgive your sin, I can't judge sin, but the one who's coming is. But I think he also is telling us, that was never my purpose. My calling was never the plan for salvation. John was saying, I'm not the one who has the winnowing fork in hand. I can't both draw the wheat to myself and separate out the chaff. And when we talk about this, this this drawing and the separating, forgiving of sin, judgment of sin, I'll be honest with you. For a lot of my life, I probably would have either avoided this passage or read it with fear. But believer, I just, I want to give you the encouragement that you don't have to approach this with fear. Because here's the reality. If you in this room are in Christ... If you have faith in Christ, and I'll let you in on a little secret, you're the wheat here. And here's the cool thing about wheat. I've never been a farmer. I've never harvested or gathered wheat. But I'm pretty positive that in that process, little grains of wheat don't sprout little wheat legs and run into the barn to safety. That's not how it works. The picture here is that the Lord gathers the wheat, draws them in close, and holds them secure. Or maybe what John is saying is, I'm giving you a message just to prepare your hearts. All I have are words, but the one who's coming, he will seek and save your hearts. And that's good news, church. It's good news for us 
And whether the people realized it or not, even though it's probably deflating in this moment, it's good news for them. And I mentioned before that this was kind of the, the apex moment for John's ministry and his time in the sun, so to speak. But the next few verses really are going to serve as the close to uh, this portion of the story. All right? Um, So let's pick up in the text. Verse 18. Here we go. All right, so we had these expectations. The people felt like maybe the time is now. Maybe John's going to take off this weird animal coat. You know, he's going to look like a king. Everything's going to be great. And John gives them a very clear reason why he is not going to ever meet their expectations in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Right? So just like with John's answer, he's letting us, know, letting us know, not only can I not fulfill your expectations of a Messiah, can I not meet your expectations of a Messiah, but really this serves as kind of the end of my time. And I think Luke is telling us the same thing because this is not really in chronological order, okay? Herod's, he didn't have spies out in the crowd that were waiting. As soon as he said this, they ran out and grabbed him and locked him up in prison. This actually happened later. But I think the reason Luke puts it here is because this is to serve as really this shifting point, okay? So we're not stuck with unmet expectations, but we have been prepared because John's given us the message that the Lord's coming, and now is time, okay? I think we have a graph. All right, perfect. Okay, I, um, I did not come up with this graph, uh, but... If any of you, and to be honest, I don't even know really where it came from. Um, But if you ever meet whoever made this graph, give them a big high five and tell them they did a great job and we're going to borrow it. Uh, I don't know how copyright laws work, but I think that's all you got to do. High five and a great job, right? I hope hope we don't get in trouble, right? But if you can look and you can see, all right, the, um, the vertical lines with the numbers at the bottom, those are the chapters of the book. All right, and we are way over on the left side. We're in this preparation stage, and you can also see that after 3, 8, and 18, the lines are a little bit more bold. And co- okay, so at each one of these, we're going to be really at a major turning point in the book, and that's exactly where we are right now, okay? So, we've got these unmet expectations. We know with how Luke words the rest of John's story and with this graph, we are about to have turning point and just a shocking, beautiful revelation. Okay? You guys ready? Ready for it? Let's keep going. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, catch this church, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Holy cow. What a huge deal this is. Right? And think about for the people there for just a minute. Right? We, we know this is a big deal. This, I mean, obviously, right? the God of creation split the skies apart and audibly spoke. 
But for the people that were waiting for the Messiah, that were longing for their hero, keep in mind, they had known God for generations. They had experienced God speak through prophets, and they're in the middle of a period of hundreds of years where God is not speaking. And now in this moment, they think he's here, the Lord has come. They think it's John. John says, sorry, it's not me. And then boom, the sky split open. God speaks. This is my beloved son. And I think, honestly, I think we could just read that and say, this is amazing. This is awesome. This is a shocking revelation. And we could take it and tell Andrew to come up here and sing a song and call it a day, and that would be good, you know. Just on its own, the text is good. The story is good. Or we could even look at and and talk about how this text really shapes and forms the way we go about baptism, You could look on our website at our doctrinal distinctives. This text shapes how we view baptism. Or you can look and see how this text shapes and forms our view of the Trinity. This is maybe the best, clearest picture in Scripture where we see the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son all together at the same time. That's good. Shocking, amazing revelation. But I think there's something greater going on here. There's something bigger going on here that is so good for us as the believer. Okay? And I think in order to get there, we've got to ask this question. And maybe some of you have already asked it, but why? Why was Jesus even baptized? Did he need to be baptized? Because remember, John's baptism, he's telling people, turn from your sin. Jesus didn't have any sin. Why was he baptized? Has anybody thought that? Anybody questioning that? Right? I know I saw at least two. So we are in good company. The good news is we are not the only ones to ask that question. The late R.C. Sproul asked that question. And so for the next five or ten minutes, I'm going to give you like my fifth grade level understanding of why this is so important, okay? So if we're asking the question, why did Jesus have to be baptized? And if he did, what does it mean for us as the believer, right? I think in order to start answering that that question, why, we could look at the Gospel of Matthew, right? All four Gospels record this event, but Matthew's Gospel is a little bit different because there's this this encounter with Jesus and John, and they talk back and forth, okay? It says this, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, right? So Jesus sought this out. It wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment thing. He came to be baptized by John, and listen to this. This is so cool. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Right? So John had every intention to stop this and say, Jesus, I can't do this. You don't need to be baptized. Right? You should be baptizing me. And in this moment, Jesus could have absolutely said, just like we, like he could have responded the way we do with our kids when they don't do what we want. Right? You tell your kids, uh, go clean your room. And they get the bad case of the but whys. But why? Right? And eventually you tell them, because I told you so. Right? And what you're really saying is, I'm in a position of authority and I'm telling you what to do. And Jesus could have done that. He could have said, John, you're right, I am Lord. I'm telling you to do this. But that's not what he said. But what he said is so good and I think it helps answer this question. He responds to him and said, this must be so. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. Now that's important, Okay? So if Jesus is doing this to fulfill all righteousness, really what we're saying is this is a, uh, an example of his obedience, okay? 
Right? This is an example of him submitting to the Father in all things. Now, some would say you could break uh, two different categories of Jesus' obedience. One would be his passive obedience and his active obedience. Just for a minute, his passive obedience, when we're talking about that, that's him submitting to the Father in his death, submitting to the cross, right? He was perfectly obedient in death. Now, we know that's a big deal. Why? That's our atonement, right? We have to have that. That's eternally good for us, that he was obedient in death. But this isn't what we're talking about here. This is a picture of his obedience in life, right? He was perfectly obedient in all things. He fulfilled righteousness in all things. So what does that mean for the believer? Because that's what's on, on display here, all right? I think this is what Paul's getting at in the book of Romans, um, I don't know if you've heard of Jesus described as the second Adam or the greater Adam, but I think this is what he's talking about, this idea of Jesus' obedience in life. Okay? I'm going to pick up in Romans 5 about verse 15. Just hang out just for a minute with me here. All right, listen to this. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for it. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift, catch this, of righteousness. Right? So we're pointing back to the garden. Think about this. When, when Adam was in the garden, his life was perfect. He, before sin entered the world, didn't know shame, guilt, doubt, fear. He and God were in close communion. Nothing was separating him. But once sin entered the world, he was kicked out of the garden. They were separated. And he could no longer just come and approach the Father. So why is Jesus' righteousness, his obedience in this moment important? Because where Adam couldn't keep covenant, where Adam couldn't obey, where Adam was kicked out of the garden and was separated, in all things, Jesus could obey. In all things, Jesus could keep covenant. In every possible way, in word, in thought, in deed, he was perfectly obedient, he was perfectly righteous, and he and the Father are one. And not only that, for those of us in faith, that righteousness is now ours, and he's our mediator. Do you see that, church? It's so good. So this picture here, this isn't just a story that Jesus was caught up in the moment. Like, ah, everybody else is getting baptized. Seems all right. I guess I'll do it too. This is a tangible reminder that in all things, he was perfectly obedient. In church, that is eternally good news for us. That he was obedient, not only in death, but in life. So as we wrap it up, we start to think about what do we take away from this text? Like, what do we hang on to? I'll be honest with you. Um, probably at this point in the teaching time, when we talk about application, uh, every week leading up to this, and probably every week moving forward, this moment's going to probably sound the same. And we might sound like a broken record. Like, where do we go from here? What do we take from here? It's probably going to all kind of sound like this. Right? 
It's all about Jesus. Because remember, that's Luke's whole point. That's the whole point he's writing. And even here in this text, right? This is our hope. Christ's obedience is our righteousness. John's telling all the people and telling us, hey, not only will I not meet these expectations, not only will I never fulfill, but the reality is, church, neither will you. And neither will I. But praise God that this shocking revelation came. The skies were split open. And God reaches down and says, this is my beloved son. He is obedient. He is righteous. That is good news for us, church. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and in this kind of vein of Christ's obedience and righteousness here in this moment, what it means for us. He says it this way. He made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? Catch this, church. Catch this. So that we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? We're about to, in just a moment, and I forgot to tell you to come back, Andrew. I'll pray for a long time so you have time to tune, I promise, okay? I knew I'd forget you, right? But we're about to respond in worship. We're going to respond in communion. We're going to respond in song. And I want you to think about this, okay? When you come to the Lord in prayer, how do you think he sees you? Do you ever think about that? Because I can assure you, he's not looking down and he's not saying, well, their sins are forgiven because of my son, but they still don't measure up. They're still broken. This one's still prone to wonder. No, because of Jesus and for those of us who have faith and are in him, when God looks on us, he no longer sees the curse of broken Adam and the curse of sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his beloved son. Amen? That is good, church. Let that be on the front of your minds and your hearts. Let that be the reason you respond in worship. Let that be the reason you go, you serve, whatever you do. Because you are eternally secure. And for those in faith, you bear the righteousness of the Son. For the unbeliever, you know, I almost hesitate to say this, and maybe I would fail evangelism 101 to say this, but um, if you're wrestling with trusting in Christ, what more could you ask to see? What else are you waiting on? Right? Because just like John couldn't meet expectations of the Messiah, the Savior, you can't either, but guess what? If you were waiting on just an amazing picture, the God of creation ripped open the skies and said, it's okay that you won't measure up because here's the one who will. This is my perfect beloved son. Unbeliever, will you trust in him today? Will you respond? I pray you will. Believers, um, I also pray that you look back thankful for this text and for what God's shown us 
the beautiful righteousness of Christ on your behalf. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue in worship, all right? God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the text. Thank you for the reminder that we are not left in a state of unmet expectations. We are not left longing and waiting to be fulfilled. But thank you, God, that your son came. Thank you that you have reminded us and showed us that in every way he has your approval because in all things he was perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient. Jesus, you are our hope not only in death but in life. So we worship you now. We thank you. It's in your name we pray.